Hey, and welcome to episode two of Classical Stuff You Should Know. My name is AJ Hannenberg, and this is... Graham Donaldson. And the title, yes, is ripping off just a little bit the Catholic Stuff You Should Know podcast, which you should go listen to. Those guys are doing a great job. Not even just a little bit. It is everything but one word is a total ripoff. Yeah, exactly. It's a full-on plagiarism, so, you know, Catholic Stuff You Should Know, guys, if you ever listen to this podcast, we are indebted to you, and we'll take you out to dinner or whatever you guys want. Uh, So this is episode two, and Graham spoke in the first episode about the tripartite platonic soul. And in this one, I'm going to start where I think all antiquity should start, and that's with Homer, right? He's the foundation of the Western canon. What that means is that from Homer's books comes most of the rest of our literature tradition. Awesome. And mostly because it all references it, right? So all of the people that were educated in the ancient world it wasn't that they were the Homer's books were the primary text they used. For a long time, it was the only text that they used. They learned Homer. They studied the Iliad and the Odyssey and not much else. And so when people had discourse, right? So if I talk to Graham, they have a common language, right? Something that they know. It's very much like, say, Seinfeld in the common world. It's something we all, like, we know the yada, yada, yada. We know about the coffee shop. We know about manhands. We know no all, soup for you. No soup for you. These are all common you know, common tropes that we can use in everyday language because we've all seen Seinfeld and Homer was that for the ancient world. So you're saying Homer was the ancient Seinfeld? Is that your thesis? Yeah, I think that's as accurate as we can, as we can put it. And, and he actually formed a lot of the thought in the ancient world because his stories were the stories that laid the foundation of the culture, right? They, they knew the story of Achilles, they knew the story of Odysseus, and those men were the examples that they would point to whenever they hit something in their life that was complicated, right? If they had to make a choice between living in obscurity or taking the chance that could lead them on to glory, the man they thought of was Achilles, and they looked at his example. And that's what they discussed around the dinner table as they would mull over their decision. And so these things were culturally important to the point where most modern scholars regard Homer as the foundation of it all, right? He's the very base. It's not that Achilles was a hero, it's that he's the hero. He's the archetype of it all, right? Most most heroes are now modeled after Achilles or Odysseus somehow. Now, does is there any evidence that like in the ancient world or even later that with such a strong legacy, was there any evidence that people in Greece or when Homer was eventually written down that people took this as like an inspired text or something that they would they would study and apply like the Hebrew like the Hebrew scriptures for the Jews or the um or the uh uh or the, the Christian text for Christians, is there any sort of sense that that Homer became, what was seen as like something divine or something worth dedicating their life to? Or was it just good, was it just stories that typified sort of human experience? Well, it was, it was just good stories. I don't think there was any, you know, thought of divinity. They thought of, of him as a great poet, but that's, that's it. They modeled their poetry after him, etc. I don't think it was ever considered divine in the way that Christian texts are. So that's why Homer's still in... Um, the upper hell in Dante. Yeah, exactly. We, Graham is referencing the Inferno. Uh, that's a whole nother story Polar for podcast. a whole different day. Uh, let's just say Homer's not actively tortured in hell in that story. He's just sort of in a place where they hang out and feel bummed all day. But he's venerated to a certain extent. Yeah, people like him. Gotcha. So Homer, who was the guy? We know a few things about him. We know that he was blind. That's the most notable bit. If you ever see a statue of Homer, his eyes will be blinded, whether that means they didn't carve pits in them or they did something else. He won't look like he can look around at all. He'll be staring at the ceiling. 
And he'll typically have a little lyre that he's playing on because he sang these stories. It wasn't that he would just come and tell the stories. He would come and sing you a long song. And in the time that he lived, that was the only real entertainment they had was storytelling. It's like going to the movies. And so the man would come to town and it wasn't just an hour and a half and then off he would go because you wouldn't see another bard for months, right? It would take a long time. And all of these things were memorized. So he would sing you a memorized story over the course of the next two or three days. So he had all of this in his head. And eventually it got written down. And what happened to Homer was sort of the same thing that happened to Shakespeare. It was so good that people now, critics, did not necessarily believe that one man could have written the whole thing. And with Shakespeare, that's a little more ridiculous than with Shakespeare. There's, you know, there's a common tongue to all of it. It sounds like one guy. There are a lot of- We have folios and we've got- Yeah, we got folios and sort, and and it all sounds like one writer. Uh, Whereas with Homer, there are parts of the story that seem older and there are parts of the story that seem newer. He'll use really old words in one section and really new words in another. And he'll use really old technology in one section and really new technology in another. Like at one point he references an ingot of, I think, uh, iron as the coolest, it was given as a gift in some games. But at a certain point in his history, iron is, you know, it's commonplace, it's everywhere. And even in the book, there's a spot that refers to iron as being everywhere and it's not so important. So the, the idea being that the iron being seen as a cool gift was the older one. Was the older piece of the story. And then the newer portion was the different piece, right? So eventually all these tales were sort of put into one big book. And that's what we call the Iliad. It's like how people loved plastic in the 60s. Right. And now we're like, plastic. Yeah, exactly. Plastic is kind of uh, not that great. And we'd recycle it where they, you know, they wouldn't have done that in the 60s. Gotcha. So that's what made everyone think that maybe this was a bunch of different poets all sort of working on a big text. And then eventually one guy just sort of wrapped it all up in a big present and said, here you go, here's the book. The problem is some of the pieces with the oldest language have the newest technology. And some of the pieces with the newest language, words that you know they didn't use way back then, have the oldest technology. What do you mean by technology? Uh, so mostly it's the things that, the materials that their weapons are made of, the sorts of armor that they have, uh, how they refer to their boats, that sort of thing. All, all of those things are sort of mixed up together with language from all eras. Gotcha. And so for a long time, this confused scholars. They had no idea why it was the way it was, and they attempted to, but could never draw lines between which pieces of the poem were old and which pieces of the poem were new. Until one guy, uh, let's see, I, I wrote his name down. Let me, let me find it here. Um, I think it's George Kirk. I think that's, let me find it. One second. This is a horrible, this is horrible podcast. Scintillating radio. Yeah, I know. I'm killing it. Um, Yeah, Jeffrey Kirk, not George Kirk. So Jeffrey Kirk was a scholar, and he actually did a lot of work with improvising bard poets. All right, so what kind of years are we talking about with Kirk? Kirk, uh, 1985. Oh, okay. So probably still around. Yeah, and it was with Slav poets. So he wrote this big treatise. He would go and work with these guys, and what he realized is that when they are composing poetry on the spot— because they are improvisational poets, because it's really hard to memorize a poem that's two days worth of singing long, well, they would have stock phrases, right, that would Ah. sort of slot into certain parts of the meter where, so they didn't have to make something up. And we see that happen in Homer, right? Achilles, the swift runner. 
uh, Hector, breaker of horses. And those phrases are used over and over again while Homer would be mentally composing the next piece of the verse. So bards would improvise pieces around stock pieces that worked. And so if I, as a storyteller or a bard, wanted to tell this big long story, I would probably inherit pieces of it from a bard before me. So Graham, you're gonna play the part of the older bard. Can do. Yep, and so I, you would tell me all the story and you would give me some stock phrases that really worked, mm-hmm. phrases that you had also inherited. And then I would use the phrases I learned from you and then stick in some of my own as I composed the tale and gave it to my audiences. So what would happen is the old language that I had received from you and your oral tradition would get mixed with the things that I know. So that if I if I was the one that coined the phrase breaker, Hector Breaker of Horses, you would take that and do Hector Breaker of Horses and Runner of And races? Achilles the Swift. Yeah, and Runner of Races or, or like add that. my own thing. Mm-hmm. And so my... Or beautiful Ankles, which is my favorite. Yeah, that he's referencing Achilles' mom, Thetis, who had lovely ankles. Everyone knows it. They go crazy for it. It's It's awesome. Anyway, so that was the big revelation is that Homer was probably a single poet. And what he did was not so much bring all these things together, but he inherited a great wealth of oral tradition from way back when and then added his own little spice to it. And he's the guy that finally wrote it down. So we think Homer was a real guy. He was blind. He actually lived. Although we don't really know where in Greece he lived. Almost every Greek island says home of Homer, (laughs) but they're not really the home of Homer. And you can buy a little Homer trinket. Yeah. From the merchant. merchant. Yeah. And the composition of the tale was around, you know, 675 BC, whereas the the war, the Trojan War, took place around 1200. So that's a, that's that's, a long time. That's a huge time. That's a big difference in time where he, the tales would have been told and retold and then he would have inherited them. So like we're talking like 600 years. Yeah. It's, it's a long hmm. time. My favorite part of Homer is that whenever a bard shows up in the Iliad or the Odyssey... There could be this high drama going on where there's a war or people are, you know, everyone's going to be talking. There's there's some period of high drama and then everyone's like, wait a minute, this bard showed up. Shut up, everybody. Sit down and let's listen to the bard. And then it's always talking about how handsome the bard is and how good he is at singing and how he moves everybody to tears and how... Um, uh, when people, when he plays sad music, the people are sad. When he plays happy music, the people are happy. And everyone at the end of it's like, man, you know what I love? Bards. <laughs> and then it goes off and the story continues. And it's, it's not just that. There's one point where Odysseus listens to a bard and he says, is there nothing better on earth than <laughs> listening to a good bard telling a good tale? This man sings like a god. And then my favorite, my very favorite one is when Homer writes himself as a bard into a celebration that Odysseus is having. And Odysseus, mind you, he's one of the greatest, considered one of the greatest Greeks ever to have lived. He walks up to the bard, looks him dead in the eyes and says, I respect you more than any man alive. And he is a king himself and has met kings and hung out with Achilles. There's no reason he should respect the bard more than anybody else. But that was Homer, right? He would write himself into these tales as these cheeky little asides about bards. It's kind of like how now in every super, every superhero movie we have, we have like the veneration of the nerd because they're written by people who were nerds. Oh, what's his name? The guy, the Marvel guy. He, he always has a cameo in his Stan films. Lee, exactly. Stan Lee, he's in every movie. <laughs> in the same way, Homer was like, and enter the bard. Except Stan Lee can see, he's not blind. Yeah, yeah. and most of the... Well, I think there's actually one blind bard in the tales. There you go. Yeah. So what is the reason now? Is the blindness just because Homer himself happened to be blind? Or is there some kind of like 
higher meaning, some sort of symbolic meaning to the blindness of Homer. Because we also have other blind poets like Milton. And Milton was blind, but he was also actually blind. Like he just got sick and... and yeah, Homer was blind. actually blind. But is there... That sort of seems to be the trope that has survived, is that the inspired poet um, uh, who the muses sing to, you have if you are blind, it sort of adds some sort of credence to your song. Do you know uh, where that came from? I think that's chicken and egg, yeah. honestly. To, to say that his poetry is good, therefore he must have been blind. I think perhaps the blindness gave Homer plenty of time to memorize and think about his tales and envision things when he wasn't concerned so much with the stuff going on outside of his head. Because I always thought it was, if you were no longer distracted with the world of sight, you're sort of spending all of your time on this interior world where the poetry lives or where the muses speak to you, and that that's kind of what gives you uh, the insight. I'll have to look it up. I know Milton writes a poem about when he is going blind about this very topic, yeah. but it's been a long time since I've read it. But that's cool. Anyway, that's Homer. So probably a real guy, probably... You know, he, someone must have been a scribe for him to write down everything, but would compose using ancient, you know, this wealth of oral tradition and then add his own flavor to it. And that's Homer. Do you think you could memorize a two day long poem? Uh, maybe using the memory palace, which we'll get into on a different Sounds like podcast. Sounds That's a whole other podcast, which I feel is like maybe the way we're going to end every podcast now as well. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Well, thanks for listening to Classical Stuff You Should Know. Yep. Uh, this was Graham Donaldson and AJ Hannenberg. And we hope to, yeah, hear you hear from you again. That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. Maybe we should. We need some sort of sign-off like Graham and AJ, the windiest of windbags. Yeah, something like that. Yep. Uh, probably not that one. Anyway, thanks for listening. <laughs> thanks for listening.